Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm your host Timo Pranger and today I asked two renowned equine clinicians with a special interest in dentistry to join me to talk about their recent publications in EVE. Both papers focus on an unpleasant but basically unavoidable complication of equine dentistry, the oronasal and oromaxillary fistula. My guests are Dr. Manfred Stoll, a private equine practitioner in Hohenstein, Germany, and Professor Paddy Dixon, an equine surgeon who has spent most of his professional career at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. So, Manfred and Paddy, tell us a bit about yourself and what got you interested in equine dentistry. Professor Dixon. Uh, thank you, Timo. Uh, my interest um, was really from sinusitis. Uh, my prime interest was in equine upper airway diseases. And we got a, a reasonable amount of uh, dental sinusitis back in the 80s. And there was very, very little factual information about it. And later on, then I advanced on to mandibular abscesses. And I just realized there was such a gap uh, in the knowledge on equine dentistry that actually it was very easy to make progress and very easy to get papers published because so little had been done. Uh, and later on, I became more interested in it and restoration and rather than repulsions and extractions, um, you know, various endodontic and other procedures. And, you know, there's been a general big increase in dentistry awareness around the equine practitioners. And it's been a very, very interesting and fulfilling area to have been involved in. Yes, um, equine dentistry has certainly evolved a lot over the last decades, and both of you have contributed very interesting and important studies um, in that time. One study that I think has changed the way many people extract cheek teeth today is um, Dr. Stoll's study about the minimally invasive transbuckle screw extraction technique. So Manfred, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, please excuse my German English. Um, I graduated in 1990 from vet school. And uh, because I was interested in COPD, I stayed in uh, 91, short time at Michigan State in the pulmonary lab. But uh, my first task there was to do dental treatments uh, on the heavy horses. And uh, back in Germany, I worked in my general equine practice uh, with just a little bit of dentistry since uh, 2001. I got in my private clinic more focused on dentistry. Yeah, like you said, I wasn't happy with surgical extractions by that time because I didn't like uh, to do repulsions and I still don't like, <clears throat> just maybe because I'm not skilled enough, I don't know. but. Uh, so I started uh, searching or looking for an alternative that feels better in my hands and uh, keeps the alveolus intact. That's very essential for the healing and that's what we are talking about today. So between 2005 and 2007, I was uh, developing that minimal invasive transbuckle screw extraction that you mentioned already, Timo. And I presented that first uh, 2007 at the AAP Congress in Orlando. Thank you very much, Manfred. The title of your publication that we are going to discuss today 
is oral sinusoidal and oral nasal fistulas, the search for an adequate treatment. And Professor Dixon's paper is titled Treatment of Equine Oronasal and Oral Maxillary Fistula. So let's get started with the discussion. And I would like to begin by asking Manfred to talk about the role of dental disease in the development of oral maxillary and oral nasal fistulas in horses. Especially endodontically and uh, periodontal disease uh, can involve periapical bone or alveolar bone, what can lead to a fistula. So if we look at the endodontic disease of a cheek tooth, um, it can lead to periapical bone lysis. We can see this, for instance, as a halo on the radiograph. And um, this can be covered with a sclerotic area to the sinus, like a wall that protects the sinus, but can also result um, to a, first to a, to a sinus tract, but that can lead to a fistula to the sinus system after the extraction of the tooth. Um, the fistula can then be to the nasal cavity, to the nasal concha, or also can result in a cutane fistula, like, like you mentioned already. Because uh, the infected alveolar bone can be fragile, in these cases, the fistula sometimes becomes enlarged with the extraction of the infected tooth. Sometimes the alveolar bone comes out even with a very careful oral extraction and uh, that can make the fistula even bigger. Then we have uh, the periodontal problems and so uh, diastema and deep periodontal disease, they can easily lead to a fistula. If we look at the diastema, the food gets compressed in apical direction in the diastema and because of the bacterial bone destruction and the pressure from the oral side, the fistula can easy, easily develop. Especially a uh, diastema between a regular and a supernumerary tooth is often involved in fistula development. The supernumerary tooth uh, can be also in the same alveolar socket with an adjacent tooth without interproximal bone, and this makes it much easier to compress the food in apical direction. Because in periodontal disease, much bigger area of bone can be affected compared to endodontic disease. Usually the periodontal disease is usually more likely to lead to a bigger fistula. Thank you. Um, Professor Dixon, could you talk a little bit about the development of fistulas as a result of tooth extraction. And I agree with Dr. Stoll. Yeah, the the fistulas that are present prior to surgery, they're generally between diastomata and the back of the mouth, usually between nines and tens, tens and eleven in there, where food gets pushed up into the sinus. The other spontaneous fistula that I see would be where we get midline uh, infundibular caries, fra fractures of the usually the nines or the tens. And some of these actually have um, a fistula already. But for my part, most of the uh, fistulas occur after dental extraction. And I had plenty of them before. I repulsed teeth for about 20 years. And, you know, you try and use as wide a punch as possible, actually develop some, you know, uh, on top, you need obtuse ones on top. And you try and get square ones almost the size of the tooth. And you do just do so much damage uh, to the uh, alveolus, you know, that uh, 
a lot is done and very often with repulsion as well you're damaging the alveolar bone on each side and it's not surprising afterwards you know that you do get um fistulas after that and as Manfred said if there's been a chronic abscess there there will be there may be necrosis of the bone sometimes there's a thickened alveolar bone which would be beneficial to prevent uh, a fistula but on some occasions it's total necrosis there and when you um, punch the tooth out um, you know you don't have much healthy tissue to form granulation tissue so it would be a problem also as well if if after you do even a reasonable repulsion if you fill the alveolus up fully with PMMA, I mean, the, they just kind of granulate in. If there's already a acrylic in there, the alveolus can't close. So depending on the amount of trauma you cause, afterwards, a lot of, you know, alveoli get infected. Uh, and very often they get infected. And if they get chronically infected, it's very often due to sequestration of the walls of the alveolus. Uh, it's more so in the man mandible than the maxilla, but in the mandible it happens. In the maxilla it happens as well. And if you have an infection in there and you know bits of sequestered bone, it's not going to heal. And that makes matters worse as well. So basically, repulsion using a wide punch. Um, if you get a post-operative infection and if there's pre-existing damage on top, you know you're more likely to get a fistula there. Yeah, and I think that is the. The experience that many people had and that triggered the development of all these new techniques basically like manfred said um too many complications following repulsion especially with a wide punch um so now let's talk about the diagnostic process um dr stoll when do you start wondering about an oromaxillary or oronasal fistula in a case and what is your diagnostic approach to these cases in order to confirm or rule out that fistula? I think that was something I thought was interesting um, in, in your publication. Yes, um, yeah. If we see a horse with sinusitis or smelly nasal discharge and related dental disease or we look for a fistula, I don't uh, go very exactly to that uh, fistulas uh, after repulsion because they are so obvious and uh, I think we I, I, I cover now <clears throat> the more the smaller fistulas and um, so if we look at for fistula in these cases we have to do a thorough examination because if we have these uh, sinusitis or smelly nasal discharge it's not always a fistula also the bacteria can migrate through the bone or can get spread with the blood or through the lymphatic system to the sinus and um, but in case of a diastema so that's my uh, focus here we uh, clean it thoroughly and look um, if the water flushing already leads to nasal discharge so if there is already a connection that we can see with the flushing and then but in deep uh, and narrow pockets uh, we use radio contrast like barium sulfate paste to detect communications uh, with a radiograph uh, after extraction we check the alveolus with an oroscope and we can also detect some fistulas with water flushing or we can close the nostrils to observe if air bubbles can be seen in the alveolar socket with the oroscope because of the pressure difference between the nasal cavity and the 
oral cavity. We can also use a probe, but we should be very careful not to make the fistula bigger. And uh, yeah, if we have created iatrogenic fistula during the extraction, like with, an, with a, a repulsion, we usually know uh, or we usually notice that during the procedure or we notice that um, when we recheck the horse after the extraction. Thank you. Uh, Professor Dixon, so once you have diagnosed a defect in the alveolar bone that results in an open communication between the oral cavity and the maxillary sinus or the nasal passage, and um, any involved teeth have been removed, how do you give this defect the best chance to heal? Right. You're saying, Timo, that we have a healthy alveolus. Obviously, if the alveolus has got sequester or is infected, uh, it's not a very good environment for the granulation tissue to go around. Yeah. But if it has been present for more than a month or two, the epithelium will grow into the uh, tract. And obviously, that's what a fistula is. And the epithelium tends to grow more from the nasal and from the maxillary side than from the oral side. And obviously, if it extends down, and you can pick this up on an oral endoscope, once the epithelium tube uh, starts growing down, it's never going to heal. It's just like if you tape your two fingers together, they're never going to join once they're covered in epithelium. So what you've got to try and do is remove the epithelium, you know, without removing too much of the granulation tissue underneath them or damaging any bone. And it's a kind of a, a judgment you've got to make. We have found in the last couple of years that if you use a, a diode laser digitally, uh, if you put it through an endoscope, you cannot really, in the back of the mouth, usually at the nines or the tens, you can't really angle it back at 45 degrees and get a good movement up there. So we very often use um, a laser just digitally held or held in a forceps and use an endoscope and just use that then to debride the epithelium as high as possible from the sinus or from the nasal cavity. And it's kind of striking a balance there as well. We need to remove all of the epithelium, certainly from one side. And even if you leave it a bit longer and stimulate some good intense uh, inflammation, that will um, help close the fistula. But if you go too deep and you damage the bone, you end up getting bone necrosis and then you're back into square one. You can also use one of these right angled uh, curettes, but you've got to be careful. You need to scrape away the epithelium but if you keep on scraping, then you're removing maybe a centimetre of, you know, healthy granulation tissue that you really want. And if you even go deeper, you can really enlarge the opening into the nasal cavity of the sinus. So little, you know, you, yeah, want to you mentioned the, um, the healthy alveolus in, in your uh, publication that is uh, so critical um, that that is the starting point. You need to make yeah. sure that following an extraction, you provide the best environment um, and that you create a healthy alveolus if it isn't healthy, correct? Yeah. And I think we're changing our attitude. At one stage, we used to pack them on a single occasion. We used to put in some swabs with some penicillin. It was actually an intramammary tube. I'm not really sure whether this would be ethical in every country and maybe get the referring practitioner to take them out uh, in 10 to 14 days. We now have these repeatedly done. So we get the referring practitioner to pull the packing out and at that stage, he's got to digitally palpate the alveolus. Uh, for the first week or so afterwards, there are ridges of alveolar bone that are sharp, and you can feel that. But after two weeks, there should be no sharpness felt. Uh, if you feel anything sharp at that stage, it'll be a sequestrum, and it needs to be taken down. Uh, and 
we really need to kind of look after these alveoli a lot better than we did, and particularly the mandibular ones. A lot of these cause a lot more trouble, and uh, they need to be repacked maybe on three or four occasions. And I think we were a bit blasé before and just packing an alveolus once. That it. We still don't know what's the best thing to pack with it. We use penicillin. We, we had a reasonable amount of problems afterwards. There's a recent publication from Germany uh, using Manuka honey, and it's about, about the same uh, level of post-operative problems. But I suppose honey would be from you know antibiotic resistance viewpoint would be a better um, substance to use than penicillin if they're both getting the same results. But we really need big, decent structure studies on what it would be the best post-operative um, uh, alveolar packing. Yes, the packing is a big topic that we're going to get back to here in just a few minutes. So now that we have heard about the importance of a healthy alveolus and taking care of the epithelialization, Dr. Stoll, could you tell us a little bit about the importance of a healthy sinus in cases of oral maxillary fistulas? Yeah, yeah. as we know from general wound healing, um, any contamination or infection makes healing difficult. So in case of an oral maxillary fistula, that means that we have to control the infection from both sides. So from the oral side and from the sinus side. And if there is a sinusitis, a food impaction or inspissated pus, this has to be treated together with a fistula treatment. Um, cleaning, flushing is often more important than antimicrobial treatment, I think. And in case of uh, sticky inspissated pus or food impaction, it's not always easy to clean the narrow areas of the sinus system, for example, the ventral sinus and other small areas or narrow areas. So usually our first approach is a transnasal sinoscopy with a 4 millimeter flexible scope. And uh, it's possible to inspect the nasal passages, the congee, and in most cases it's possible to enter the caudal maxillary sinus through the nasal maxillary aperture. In very few cases with very much enlarged aperture, it might be also possible to get into the rostral aspect of the maxillary sinus but that's very rarely the case. If uh, flushing through the scope is not successful, especially in the cases with inspissated pus or food, we perform a trephination of the frontal sinus for the sinus treatment. And uh, if the rostral maxillary sinus is involved, we also have to remove a part of the bulla of the maxillary septum to reach the rostral area. Yeah. The antibiotic treatment you mentioned already is um, yeah, usually done according to the bacteria culture and resistogram, but if you look to the papers and to our uh, bacterial cultures, most often anaerobic bacteria are present. So for the first treatments, uh, penicillin and metronidazole are effective to the anaerobic bacteria. And um, <clears throat> few cases we also see fungal infections they have to pre they have to be treated uh, special with anti fungal antimicrobials thank you yes um, treatment of the sinusitis is certainly a very interesting and important topic and another one that we already briefly mentioned is the packing material for the alveolar socket and i would like to go back 
and asked Professor Dixon what material he currently prefers when packing the alveolus. Yeah, yeah. I'll make a comment first on the sinus. Please go ahead. Um, we used to believe that the um, the nines and the tens were, sorry, the tens were always in the uh, caudal maxillary sinus. Uh, very often the tens are actually in the rostral maxillary sinus and the ventral sinus. And if we think about sinusitis, the rostral maxillary sinus is involved in more than 90% of cases and the ventral conchal sinus probably in 85 uh, versus the caudal. So we always treat them by uh, frontal sinoscopy and opening the ventral conch, sorry, the maxillary septal bulla and removing insufficient pus. And we do very seldom do culture. The usual cause, if they're not getting better, irregardless of the cause, uh, would be insufficient pus there. And, you know, given taking swabs and doing different cultures is just really, you know, wasting time. You've got to really get rid of that. Uh, and the other thing would be that more than 50% of horses with sinusitis, they have infections of the conchal bulla in their nasal cavity, the nasal conchal bulla. And you've got to go to the middle meatus and check these out. Otherwise, you can clear the sinusitis, remove the tooth, get rid of the sinusitis, and still have a smelly nasal discharge. And it will be due to infection of the nasal conchal bulla, usually the ventral. And even sometimes after the infection goes, the residue of the uh, of the bulla, just pieces of dead bone are lying there. And some of these uh, remain permanently infected. And these would be some of the non-responsive ones. Yeah, Sorry. I speak now what you asked me about, about packing. Uh, again, we, we normally used to pack them with um, two or three swabs with some crushed metronidazole and some, some uh, penicillins in uh, intramammary tubes. Uh, and, you know, they're soft and the alveolus can granulate in about them, but there's a danger about, you know, inducing bacterial resistance. But very often they're in infected alveoli. We felt it was justified. But some other people have found equally good results with um, swabs soaked with honey. Other people use acrylic. But again, if you pack the alveolus with acrylic, there's no room for it to um, to close. Um, but we do need to, if, if we have to repulse and we have to uh, put packing into uh, alveolus, it really, it's not really just check them once. Uh, until the alveolus heals, they need to be checked every 10 days or every fortnight. And some of these may be checked um, three or four times. I think we're changing our attitude to that. How about you? Um, yeah, um, I think uh, there's also a huge discussion if we should really pack the alveolus or just leave it or just leave only a blood clot. We had this discussion in um, in the Nordic College uh, conference last uh, this year. And uh, because some have the experience that it's also possible just to leave uh, the blood clot uh, without any packing. But uh, I usually routinely use hard crystallized honey for the apical half of the alveolus uh, and cover that with uniform gauze. Uh, like uh, Patty already mentioned, uh, honey has many effects. Uh, they improve healing and granulation. They attract tissue macrophages and enhances fibroplasia. And uh, a good effect is also that it prevents that we place the gauze too deep into the alveolar socket. It's not only uh, that we have the risk to place acrylic or silicone plugs too deep, it's also if we plug with the gas too deep into the socket, that also inhibits uh, the granulation. So if we have, the, if we use that hard crystallized honey, we put it into the apical half of the alveolar socket and then 
just uh, have the chance to do the gas on top of that or to use uh, silicone, whatever. We usually don't use the silicone depression material because there's a paper from Ringeisen and they showed that uh, there's cytotoxic effects on the periodontal stem cells from that materials. Um, yeah, we repeat the plugs also every one to two weeks. Uh, yeah, one, seven to 14 days. Yeah, but there are very many ways to plug alveolar sockets after extraction. Yeah, I, I disagree about just leaving a blood clot. And, you know, it's mainly the small animal practitioners have told me that. But it's okay in a short alveolus of a brachydon tooth like a dog. And, you know, you can have maybe a centimeter of blood. But in the horse, where it can be maybe eight centimeters deep, and the horse is, you know, masticating for 17 hours a day with fibrous food, I very often find on the blood clots there, if they get infected, the, the blood clot on the bottom is actually, yeah. you know, really septic. And, and doing that is a really good growth material for the, for the bacteria. So, yeah, I totally yeah. agree, uh, Patty. But there was a discussion, and there were experienced uh, equine dental practitioner. They had the experience that it, they have good experience with just leaving also in very deep pockets, just the blood clot. So I just want to mention that there's a huge discussion, even yeah, at least yeah. in Germany. So <laughs> we're some, some yeah. German colleagues. Yeah, well, yeah but, but like a lot of dentistry, we need kind of bigger objective studies and people need to be honest and yeah. just say what went wrong and, you know, how we can get you know better results in the future. Yeah, right. Very good. Okay. Thank you. Now, here's another question that I think is quite interesting. How do you deal with fistulas that persist while the socket continues to fill with granulation tissue and you're having a hard time keeping a plug in the alveolar socket to protect the fistula from food contamination? The, um, you know, the fistula is getting smaller. It's getting less than a centimeter. It's very hard to keep anything up there. And at that stage, you've got to do acrylic between the adjacent teeth. Mm -hmm. And the main problem is that the, the adjacent teeth are covered with a pellicle. And so you need to get these um, prepared properly before you put acrylic in. And you don't want to, if you're pushing soft acrylic up, you know, it can go right up. I've had some referred cases and the acrylic is going right into the sinuses. So you need to judge the amount of acrylic you have and you need to prepare the teeth. We prepare them by... Uh, just cleaning them first, you know, use swabs and alcohol. And after that, we put on phosphoric acid and leave it on and etch them. And that will take off any pedicle that's on them. And also, too, it'll make the calcified tissue underneath pitted. And then immediately get some wet uh, PMMA onto them. And then just gently work out how much PMMA you need to join both together. And don't push it too deep in. And it, you know, it takes a bit of a technique, you know, a bit of skill to do it. And sometimes it'll set too early and it falls. And if it does, and if it's a bit loose, you've just got to go back and start again. Don't let saliva get on it in between. Uh, but, you know, in, in the first um, instance, it would be trying to get acrylic just between the teeth and allow it to um, heal itself. If it's getting very narrow, it's very hard to get anything up there. How, how, do you think? Do you, how long do you keep those acrylic plugs in place then? Because you know that once they're in, um, it's hard for you to look uh, if what your fistula is doing. So what is your your um, suggestion for that? Well, just leave them there. If, if the, horse is, the horse will be asymptomatic while that's in, 
And sometimes they say, come back in three months. And if the uh, acrylic is still there, I say, let's come back in another three months, giving you time to go. So, you know, if, if the horse is asymptomatic and the acrylic, and the acrylic will very often get jammed there because you get dental drift. Once that tooth removes, you know, if you remove a, a tooth, you know, usually within two years, that extraction site will almost disappear. So the tooth behind and the front, depending on it, it will be closing in. Yeah. And if it's there and it's, um, it's asymptomatic, why take it off to see if it's fully healed yet? Just leave it there. Yeah. 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 Very good. What do you do, Manfred? Yeah, in these cases, we have a fistula or we have detected the fistula. Um, as an adjustment, we try to make the plug also more secure, like uh, Paddy said already. And, but in most cases, if it's still a deep um, alveolar socket, we still use the crystallized honey covered with gauze. But um, if it gets more shallow, we have also, um, we use uh, sutures to fix uh, the, um, the gauze buckle and palatal to the gingiva to keep the, the plug in place. And uh, if we have detected a fistula um, in, the, in, in the alveolar socket, and before we, we use the plug, in some cases, we use a commercially available collagen membrane that's made of equine macerated tendons. And uh, to cover the fistula before we use the plug, or we, we plug the alveolus. And sometimes we use silicone plugs instead of the gauze to have a more, um, a better sealing of uh, the alveolus socket even if it's not the perfect material. Um, if we detect a huge contamin uh, communication to the sinus or the nasal cavity directly after the extraction, um, we consider also the use of an extracted tooth as a perfectly fitting plug. After shortening the root, um, after removing the root um, and do a retrograde endodontic cleaning and filling and we put it back into the alveolar socket and usually the tooth stays there in place uh, by itself if not we use composite to fix it to an adjacent tooth because we use we like to use these uh, kind it's, it's like a replantation of uh, retrograde endodontic uh, treated teeth because they have the perfect fitting of the alveolar socket and we have a very deep uh, alveolar socket and we want to protect a huge defect I think it's a very ideal um, material that can stay there and we also had cases where we had periodontal regeneration so also the uh, the tooth that we just wanted to use for packing uh, was re um, modeled or the periodontium remodeled and the tooth stayed for, there for a long time. That's very interesting. Thank you very much. At this point, I would like to encourage our listeners to read the two publications that we are discussing here today. They are loaded with excellent information and the figures will help with the understanding of some of the techniques discussed here. Access to those two papers will be free in the month following publication of the podcast. And finally, I would like to hear a little bit about the surgical treatment options for oromaxillary and oronasal fistulas. And perhaps, Professor Dixon, you can get started with a brief description of the mucoperiosteal flap.
Well, the muca periosteal flap, uh, it's very, very widely used in small animals. You know, um, if you do a rough extraction on a dog or a cat, you can readily end up with that. But it's easy for them to do it because they're dealing with carnivores and you can hinge the mouth right open. You know, you can go right back to the caudal molar. You've got great access. But unfortunately, the horse is a herbivore and it doesn't have to, you know, eat rabbit. So all it needs to do is nibble grass. So you can only get the mouth open by three or four inches at uh, front, 10 centimetres. So flaps uh, can be very useful, but getting access is difficult. Uh, and so very often to... Um, do a flap even on the six or seven or eight you're going to have to do a commissurectomy you're going to have to incise up at the lips and to get in there the flaps themselves it's a pretty simple uh, concept you need to make a flap you know usually the width of the tooth or even slightly uh, wider and just cut it deep into the you know the mucous membrane of the periosteum and you need to go at least to midline and then you elevate that in the horse, there's a groove with the greater palatine artery, and it's called greater for um, a reason. It's a, quite a big artery, and it's not an end artery, so it'll bleed from both directions. You could try and remove your flap above that if, if the horse had a very, very deep groove with the artery lying in it. But in general, you've got to sacrifice the artery, and you've got to tie it off on both sides. And then you extend your flap across towards the midline of the hard palate uh, from the defect, until you can extend it tension free and if there's any tension on the flap it's going to break down and if the flap is um there is tension on it and you've got to go beyond the midline you need to widen your flap make your flap wider so that you can try and preserve a blood supply and then you try and mobilize some of the mucosa uh, on the buccal aspect very often is scarred here because you know they've been scraped and there's been chronic infection and we need to try and obviously remove any epithelium within the fistula and then try and suture that to the uh, buccal mucosa. And, you know, there are various surgical techniques. You can walk the sutures, you know, put them further laterally on the, uh, on the outsides of the flap and then try and walk it forward. But the main thing here would be if your flap's under tension, it'll just be his. Uh, at the site of the fistula, just for a suture to the mucous membrane of the, of the buccal mucosa, uh, you can put an acrylic uh, plug there. You can just put an acrylic between the, if it's between two teeth, uh, to try and protect it. And we would normally then, the, the lips heal up. I mean, it looks really gruesome. Sometimes you hit one or two veins in them, but they heal up really well. You, after a fortnight, you can hardly tell about them. And we would normally have them on a sloppy diet, just put them onto like a geriatric nuts, um, just like chopped food. Uh, have that soaked for a couple of weeks and some of these do really well if they're further back it's just so hard to get access and if it's beyond the nines or tens uh, i haven't had very much success with these and some of the fistulas back there they have extended on towards the hard palate some of these would be al almost the width of the tooth again onto the hard palate and it will just take you know such an extensive amount of moving of, of mucosa with poor access that I have found these very, very difficult. And for back there, I would recommend, uh, if we had one of these again, we would recommend um, Dr. Stoll's um, try and put in, you know, a, a, a piece of ear cartilage or even possibly uh, transposition of the facial muscles, but we'll come to that later.
Yeah, yeah. Be beside the surgical options, uh, we also discussed with the owners if they really prefer to manage the horse with the uh, if they want want to have done a surgical treatment or if they prefer maybe a semi-permanent uh, plug like a silicone, a PMMA or other materials for little money as a provisorial treatment like uh, you mentioned um, to, that it also if they are asymptomatic maybe you can leave the fistula and uh, have this uh, semi-permanent treatment or, but if the people like to do um, a treatment as good as possible. We start usually always with a conservative treatment to grow tissue and uh, to reduce the size of uh, the fistula. Um, usually our first approach is then the, like you mentioned, the mucoperiostal or the buccal mucosa flap or a combination of both. The the surgical technique is usually similar to the skin graft, um, but like we said already, the oral cavity is just a bad area to access, and the tissue close to the fistula is so rigid, like uh, Betty mentioned, because of the chronic inflammation. And um, I just uh, will go to the buccal mucosa flap. We haven't talked about that. But it's, uh, we can harvest a horizontal strip of buccal mucosa and submucosa and turn it in direction to the palate to suture it over the fistula after debridement and removal of the epithelium. And, uh, but the buccal mucosa flap is not that robust, so we use it mainly to cover small fistulas or to protect sutures or other treatments like the auricular cartilage grab, uh, graft. So now we are can talk about a little bit about the auricular cartilage graft, and um, yeah, I've seen that first in small animals um, to close palatal defects. So when I saw that, I thought it would be an idea to use this uh, technique to treat fistula in horses, and uh, we can perform. Uh, the technique in standing sedated horse, we harvest the piece of the ear cartilage at the caudolateral aspect of the ear, <clears throat> and the, the cartilage should be about one centimeter wider in each direction than the fistula. And an incision is then made around the fistula to elevate the mucosa and to place the cartilage underneath the mucosa like uh, to create a pocket to place the cartilage. Um, sometimes it can be easier to make the incision palatal to the fistula and elevate the mucosa from the bone with the Metzenbaum scissors and go across the fistula to the buccal side <laughs> and also elevate the mucosa to place a stripe of ear cartilage submucosal across the fistula. It's just if we start at the palatal side, we also have the risk to, uh, to injure the the palatine artery, like we mentioned already. The cartilage we suture buccal and palatal to the fistula, to the mucosa, uh, with, with the PDS uh, suture. And if the cartilage is unprotected to the oral cavity, um, 
In small animals, they don't cover it. They leave it like it is. They just feed slushy food, but um, I didn't do that so far. I covered all the time with a buckle mucosa flap to protect um, the cartilage. And the cases we have done, the cartilage was well tolerated and didn't get necrotic. Uh, some healed in very nicely and some cases, at least the fistulas got smaller. And uh, yeah, that's uh, what I also mentioned. We have to educate the owners that that that's not always a one-step uh, treatment, these surgeries we are discussing now. Um, it's more, uh, in many cases, we have to treat the horses or to do, to do um, surgeries more than one time. And that's the reason we have to educate the owners before we start doing that, um, these the surgeries, because we have a high risk of dehiscence and incomplete healing. Thank you. And finally, I would like to hear your thoughts on one more surgical treatment, the transposition of facial muscles. I haven't done many of them. You know, they do cause, uh, they can be successful, particularly the levator nasal labialis, uh, but they do cause facial distortion. And, um, you know, some dysfunction, the horse can't move his face, but they can be done for a caudal fistula. It would be a last resort, uh, usually back there. I think if you persevere with, with um, acrylic uh, and debridement, we would get by. But it, it would be, if something eventually didn't get better, um, we could try for one of those. But he's going to have a flat face after that. I, 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 I'm not that uh, negative to that muscle um, transposition. Um, these horses we have done didn't seem to have a lot of... Uh, this formation of the, the facial uh, situation and just if they wanted to lift up the, the lip, if we have used the, uh, the levator labi superioris muscle, they was, was not that symmetric, but uh, it was not that bad from the cosmetic effect. And um, I think in the, for, the, for, the, for the cheek teeth, for the molars, um, it's a reasonable technique. Thank you very much. I believe we've covered a lot today in our podcast. And before we sign off, are there any take-home messages you would like to share with our listeners? Dr. Stoll. Yeah, if possible, try to prevent an extraction. For instance, with endodontic treatment, I think we start these techniques now a little bit more and hopefully we can get better with that. And uh, yeah, like I mentioned, we need good client education before we start the treatment because the success is not always guaranteed. Yeah, we need good surgical skills and long instruments in the oral cavity. It's hard to place the sutures and we have to select the right cases for the right treatment. That would be my take home message. Yeah, thank you. And um, yeah. Professor Dixon? Yeah, I have a very similar one. You know, I mean, we used to have a lot more fistulas years ago when we used to repulse teeth. And, you know, by doing oral extraction carefully, and if the oral extraction doesn't work, using using a fine Steinman pin, a fine Steinman pin going through an alveolus, you know, that alveolus will heal compared to a wide punch. So basically, if we can try and prevent them, it would be our treatment. And initially then, if, if we do get them, unfortunately, 
would be get a healthy alveolus. Just make sure that there's no um, uh, infection in there. And it's usually due to small sequestra hanging around. In the maxilla, they often fall into the oral cavity, whereas in the mandible, they tend to remain. And I would initially try acrylic, just curettage and acrylic. And most of them would get better on that. And if eventually uh, they, they do not get better on that, we can go for the periosteal flap or muscle transplant, something like that. But again, prevention is better than cure, the old Victorian saying. Thank you very much. And um, prevention is better than cure is a perfect ending to our podcast today. I want to thank you, Dr. Stoll and Professor Dixon, for being with me here today. And I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Until next time. Okay. Thank you for the invitation. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash e.